This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today's episode finally addresses the issue of impeachment. We've been holding off on that, uh, but we've come to the conclusion now that uh, the historical foundation for our current issues is something we do need to explore. And we're very fortunate uh, today that we have, I think, uh, the person who is doing the most interesting work on the 19th century and someone who has written recently about the first presidential impeachment, the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. Uh, We have with us uh, Professor Manisha Sinha. She's a professor at the University of Connecticut. She's the James L. and Shirley A. Draper Chair in American History there. Uh, She's the author of two prize-winning books. Uh, The first, The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, Politics and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina. And more recently, uh, really a a tremendous uh, hit book, uh, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Uh, Many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Manisha also from her recent uh, article in the New York Times, published on December 1st, uh, comparing Presidents Andrew Johnson and Donald Trump. Uh, Manisha, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Our pleasure. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Manisha, we have, of course, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Lessons from the 19th Century. Well, let's hear about the lessons. It's a little odd today to think that we could gain some insight from those backwater days, those days of ferry crossings and beatings on the Senate floor. A little hard to think of anything but dusty top hats and horse-drawn carriages like Reconstruction truly was building it all again. And it is, on the other hand, far too cynical to say that we are at the precipice of a second civil war, like we need to draw blood to stay sane, or that we are a polar society colliding on the edges of sanity, or that our moment is some anomaly of freedom where black is suddenly white and white is black. But there is a look in the eyes of those old photographs that age quietly in sepia haze that seem so familiar the conviction votes in the Senate that come down to the wire, and the sense of tension, and the heavy water pitchers of responsibility. There was a look in their eyes that feels so much like our own. And history is about trying to understand, trying to do better. History is the ultimate sign of progress, that we can look back at the photographs of the mangled bodies and understand it better than the photographer could possibly comprehend. It is the ultimate sign of progress in the lessons that come flowing out of the past, like the gooey syrup of sweet renewal on top of pancake stacks of old history textbooks. And sometimes when the scaffolding comes off, when the fantasy nostalgia disappears, when we can stare down into the pit of old photographs without some fear of disenchantment, we can understand some semblance of where we are, floating out without predetermined destiny. What is your poem about, Zachary? Well, my poem is really about uh, how when we think about the historical lessons that we can gain from the 19th century, we need to to look at the past and this fascinating history as a way not of determining our future or, or of necessarily prescribing what is going on in our society today, but about understanding where we are and thinking about where we need to go. Hmm. I think that's a good place to turn to uh, the first presidential impeachment and what happened then and how it affects us today. Uh, Manisha, why was President Andrew Johnson impeached? Well, uh, there were 11 articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson, and uh, the first nine had to do with the fact that he had violated a federal law 
the tenure of Office Act, right. which was passed in 1867, by firing uh, Lincoln's sexier war, uh, Edmund Stanton. Uh, and the reason why Congress had passed that law in the first place, which was, of course, encroaching a bit on executive privilege, yes. was because Johnson had been a very obstructionist president and had consistently uh, tried to undermine Reconstruction, which was this project to establish an interracial democracy in the post-war South after the demise of slavery. Um, and he had just, you know, been firing Union Army officers, uh, you know, uh, pardoning a whole slew of uh, uh, high-ranking uh, Confederates indiscriminately. Um, it was quite clear that uh, he would undermine Congress uh, and its laws. Um, he vetoed the most number of laws of any president, and his vetoes were consistently overridden by Congress. Uh, so it was a way to kind of contain his uh, sort of destructive role at that time um, and, as a, a kind of an accidental president. Right, right. He, of course, became president after Lincoln's assassination. Uh, the impeachment occurred in 1868. Uh, why did it take so long then? If it, I mean, if he was so clearly uh, obstructionist toward congressional activities beginning in 1865 when he took over, why did it take until 1868 for this moment to, to occur? So uh, what happens is when uh, Congress figures out that Johnson is not going to continue uh, with Lincoln's policy, that he was going to be this retrograde president who is going to completely undermine the Union victory in the Civil War, uh, they start containing him, first by simply overriding all his vetoes by... And, you know, overriding a president's veto is not a simple thing. You need a two-thirds majority in both houses. And, um, indeed, the Northern public had handed a rebuke to to Johnson by electing a kind of a supermajority of Republicans in both houses of Congress. Um, so they felt they could contain him, and the Tenure of Office Act was to prevent him from firing Edwin Stanton, who is a very crucial member of the cabinet because he is Lincoln's appointee. Right. He is, um, you know, uh, he has the back of most of these Union Army officers who are charged with implementing Reconstruction law and policies in the South. Uh, so he was an important person to, to have in place. And he was not necessarily a, a radical Republican himself, but the war uh, had actually radicalized many Republicans uh, like Stanton, and he was very committed to carrying on that policy of Reconstruction. Right. Is, so it, the, they passed the law in order to make sure that Johnson would not replace him the way he had replaced hmm. uh, many anti-slavery Union generals in the South. Um, and instead gotten very conservative uh, appointees who were appointed basically to undermine uh, Reconstruction uh, in the South. So uh, that was that was like the smoking gun. Right, uh, right. So they wanted to contain him. Uh, they passed this law, and the expectation was that he wouldn't violate the law, but he did, and he ended up firing Stanton, and, and that's why he was. So that was the, the smoking gun, but of course the list of offenses that they had against Johnson was long in the making. Right. And to get into that for one second, is it is it a fair characterization to say that Congress had passed a series of laws and uh, members of Congress who voted for impeachment uh, believed that the president was not enforcing and putting into place those laws that Congress had passed? Is that is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Not only was he not enforcing them, but he was actively undermining right. them. Right, right. 
So, for instance, the Civil Rights Act, the very first Civil Rights Act ever passed in the country's history of 1866, which was passed over his veto, or the right. Freedmen's Bureau Act, right. uh, which was also passed over his veto, which is a federal government agency overseeing the transition from slavery to freedom in the South, and, and really trying to maintain a semblance of the rule of law in the South at that time. Um, so these, all these laws had been vetoed by Johnson, and they had overridden his, his vetoes. So it's quite clear that Johnson would do anything to undermine policy. He would also uh, encourage, actually, sudden white resistance um, to the implementation of these laws. He would fire Union Army generals who were there in place to make sure that, you know, that you don't have kind of an open season of racial terror against free people, right. uh, which was happening in the South. Uh, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is already founded in 1866. So in a way, Johnson is, is inspiring and actually instigating a lot of Southern white resistance right. um, to Reconstruction policy. And in the North, the feeling is that he has actually, he was frittering, frittering away the, the victory that they had won. Right. Uh, we, you had a war for five years, uh, and, and slavery is destroyed. But Johnson uh, was kind of making sure that you know all that bloodshed and all the treasure that had been spent to to sort of reconstruct the Union was for nothing because you'd go back to square one um, with African Americans being reduced to a state of semi-servitude. Ironically, that's what happens after Reconstruction yes. is eventually yes. overthrown. But at that time. There was no northern appetite for that. Um, and Johnson took his case to the people. Right. He would hold these rallies where he would, um, you know, accuse uh, radical Republicans and abolitionists of being traitors and, 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 and say, you know, argue that the Confederates, who had actually taken up arms against the Union, were the real heroes right. and were being victimized. Uh, by these radicals. And, and so, so yeah. j- just to, I, I want us to stay in the 1860s for a while longer in this conversation, mm-hmm. but just to just to draw one comparison to today, is it fair to say that, that this was an instance maybe analogous to what some are claiming today, where Congress passed legislation to provide aid to Ukraine and the president actively undermined it? Do you see an equivalence between that and what Johnson did with regard to the Civil Rights Act and the Freedmen's Bureau Act and others? Absolutely. You know, um, I feel that Trump has been systematically undermining, um, you know, federal laws, uh, encroaching on, 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 you know, congressional, um, you know, uh, powers also in a way because um, he either, you know, vetoes or does not implement right. um, laws passed by Congress. It's, it's the case of Ukraine where he withheld the aid clearly for personal political gain. Um, and that's the smoking gun now with the infamous telephone call uh, with the president of Ukraine. But even prior to that, you could see, you know, Congress wants to punish Saudi Arabia uh, because for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and and, Cong- and, and you know, Trump just overrules that. Um, so the question becomes, um, you know, his his policies don't seem to be dictated by any respect for the powers of Congress, for the laws passed by Congress, or, you know, for the rule of law in general. Uh, And I think that's very, very troubling. And it it does, you know, it struck me, you know, just being immersed right now, uh, writing a book about Reconstruction, 
um, and having just written about Johnson's impeachment, I was struck by the sort of uncanny, virtually eerie parallels between um, Johnson's presidency and the kinds of things he did uh, with what Trump has been doing um, and and the way in which he acted with Ukraine. Yes. Yes. Zachary? Are there parallels in the ways uh, that personality politics and the sort of politics of emotion that we're seeing uh, rather recently with uh, the impeachment inquiry and impeachment votes? Was was that something that played a role in this this clash in uh, the late 19th century? That's a very interesting question because, um, you know, Johnson was also known for lacking any kind of public decorum. Uh, He was um, uh, all personal. You know, he he was drunk at his swearing-in. He was drunk when he was sworn in as vice president. Um, He was, um, you know, not known to be very erudite. He he, he had been illiterate most of his life, uh, had gained literacy only as an adult. I mean, ironically, he was, um, you know, born very poor as a poor southern white man who... Uh, eventually became a slaveholder and a politician, and a fairly successful one at that. Uh, but personally, he was disliked. We have some evidence that his, his wife didn't like him either, wow. and that she kind of stayed away from the White House while he was president. And, um, you know, he, he just doesn't seem to be a very likable character. Even the people who were defending him would sometimes uh, be uncomfortable with the way in which he would conduct himself. So the, so the lack of, you know, kind of presidential demeanor, you could say, or your public decorum uh, that people sometimes look for uh, in the president of the United States. Um, so you could say, yes, he was. There's some emotion involved there because he seemed to have been personally uh, disliked and publicly, you know, kind of also disliked a lot, especially in the in the Republican press. Uh, there's a parallel there, too. I think Trump seems to arouse very strong emotions um, in the public. Um, yes. You know, people who don't like him a lot and people who, you know, as he said, he could shoot a man uh, in Fifth Avenue in broad daylight who would still support him right. uh, if right. he did that. So that... that that element is certainly there. So one big difference, uh, Manisha, seems to be that, uh, as you said before, uh, the Republicans uh, who were opposed to Johnson and wanted to remove him from office, uh, they had a supermajority uh, in both houses and, and of course, uh, voted to impeach him. Uh, but then he was not convicted in the Senate. What, what happened there? So Johnson comes very close to being convicted. You need a two-thirds majority in the Senate to convict a president, uh, to impeach a president. Um, so he's impeached in the House. The trial is held in the Senate. Uh, and they have the two-thirds majority, the Republican Party. Right. Uh, but seven people, seven moderate Republicans, decided not to impeach Johnson because he assured them through his attorneys that he would no longer interfere in reconstruction policy. So the two-thirds majority was lost by one vote, mm-hmm. which is quite tragic if you think about it, because yes. they, had, they nearly had the two-thirds majority. I mean, they, yes. they, they jumped through all these impossible hoops that are set up uh, to impeach a president who is truly uh, negligent and criminal in, in his office. And um, 
they lose that uh, by one vote. A lot of people blame Edmund Ross, who was actually evoked today as a hero yes. by Jonathan Turley, one of the law school professors testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. But actually, Ross was bribed uh, by patronage uh, to change his vote and to actually uh, to free Johnson. So he was not heroic at all. You could say that he was actually pretty corrupt. I, I'm so glad uh, you that brought that up. I, I could, <laughs> yeah. Because I was I was thinking about that as I was watching the Judiciary Committee hearings as well, that precise point. Uh, and it, may, it might be worth our elaborating on that. So Ross is one of the seven Republicans who vote against conviction of uh, President Andrew Johnson. In what way was Ross bribed by President Johnson? Apparently, he was promised patronage. And there was actually an inquiry against him the way there's one against Representative Devin Nunes for his uh, own dealings with Ukraine and um, his conflict of interest that he did not reveal to the Intelligence Committee. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's another parallel, I guess. But uh, this guy was a senator, and uh, there was some inquiry held uh, because they thought that he had actually uh, been bribed. He is not impeached. He does not stand for election again. He, He kind of retires. From politics after this, mm. uh, but uh, but this this notion of his wrongdoing, this this uh, talk of him being bribed, was actually uh, discussed even then, um, and most historians agree that there was some kind of deal struck between Johnson and and Ross. What, what um, about the other six? I mean, I mean, okay. he was not the only one. I mean, why why didn't uh, they? when they had the chance to remove this horrible president, uh, who they didn't like personally either, who was never elected president in the case of President Johnson. Why why did Ross and six others not go for the jugular? So the other six are all moderate Republicans, and two of them, actually, uh, Lyman Trumbull and uh, William Fessenden, were actually responsible for some of the Reconstruction laws um, that we that we admire. Mm-hmm. So it, it is interesting to see why they stepped back uh, and why they felt, you know, that they would take Johnson's assurance that he would no longer interfere in Reconstruction if he was just allowed to serve out his term. Everyone knew that Johnson was damaged goods after impeachment. He was not going to get any presidential nomination after his impeachment. Uh, and they thought, you know, it's probably for the best to just, just let him serve out the term. But I also think that they were wary of Benjamin Wade, who was the Speaker of the House. So because Johnson became president after Lincoln was assassinated, he didn't have a vice president. Right. So if he had been impeached, then Benjamin Wade, who was a radical Republican, Speaker of the House, would have become president. And Wade was a true radical. I mean, he was not just an advocate of black rights. He believed in women's right to vote, which was fairly unusual at that time. He believed in labor rights. Uh, and the sense was that they were not too fond of Wade, and they were not too fond of many of the radicals. And this was one way for them to to make sure that, you know, they would contain Johnson but not have Wade as president. Right. right. So in a certain way, and, and I think this is the way many historians write about this, it, it's a way of asserting power for Congress, uh, keeping the president uh, powerless, uh, rather than putting right. in a, a different president at that time. Absolutely. Because Edmund Johnson is like a lame duck president right. after that. I mean, right. he's totally ineffective. Um, but, you know, there was, there's one thing that that Trumbull and Fessenden probably regretted is that he continues to oppose 
black citizenship. And he's eventually re-elected to the Senate, mm. uh, where he continues his obstructionist role of opposing Reconstruction. And he eventually dies in 1875. But till his dying day, he opposed black rights. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Zachary, you have another question? Yeah, where was uh, public opinion on, on this issue? Was was there a, a, a sense of 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 dissatisfaction with the result, or, or what was what was the public perception of this event? Uh, again, a very good question. You know, many um, uh, Republicans uh, in 1866 certainly by that time it was already evident that Johnson was you know not going to. Uh, um, you know, implement uh, any of uh, the Republican agenda, which was to have uh, a reconstruction in the South um, that would safeguard the rights of the newly freed slaves. And um, public opinion at that time was very much with Johnson's opponents, uh, because most of these Southern states, with Johnson's permission, had passed these black codes, uh, which really did reduce African Americans to a state of semi-servitude. So in the North, there was a real reaction to this, and that's how you get that supermajority in both houses, just like uh, the uh, 2018 elections, where the Democrats won over the House um, as, I think, somewhat of a reaction to what was happening. Uh, you had that. In the north, so public opinion in the north certainly was very much with Johnson's critics, uh, with his uh, Republican opponents. Um, in the south, black people and southern white unionists, who you would think was Johnson's natural base because he was a unionist, um, they opposed him too. They were extremely um, uh, upset that the president was was pardoning traitors while he was ignoring them. So public opinion stayed actually uh, against Johnson and uh, throughout the impeachment process too. Uh, this notion that somehow the radicals overreached by impeaching Johnson, uh, a lot of that was written by revisionist historians uh, of the Civil War right. who felt, you know, that the war was not about slavery, right. it was about states' rights, and, you know, who bought into the whole lost cause myth. Uh, and... Uh, you know, Ulysses Grant is elected with, again, a substantial majority in 1868. And again, that's a repudiation of Johnson and, and his policies. Um, so public opinion at that time, if you track it, you know, we didn't have any polls then, so you can't be very scientific about it. But if you just read uh, through the elections and, you know, newspapers, part of that newspapers that existed at that time, uh, you could see that, you know, that the northern public opinion was very much against Johnson. Uh, in fact, he is booed at his rallies uh, quite often. Mm-hmm. He's booed. Uh, it's not just people who support him. Right, right. So, yeah. so, so one of the questions, Manisha, that many of us ask as historians uh, is, you know, why do we not have another uh, impeachment for um, more than a hundred years after this, is it simply because there were no, no bad presidents, or or is there a distaste, despite the continued uh, anger toward Johnson, is there a distaste about doing this again? What 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 is your your sense of that? Um, you know, you're right. I mean, we've had fallible presidents who have uh, you know done uh, some things that don't pass the smell test, right. you know, uh, politically and legally. I mean, you think about the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, 
you know, those could be impeachable offenses you could think about. Um, but, you know, it takes a lot to, to remove and impeach a president just from the impeachment process described in the Constitution. And usually, you know, unless somebody is completely recreant to, the, to their oath of office, uh, you know, I think even their opponents in Congress has been reluctant to exercise this constitutional power. So if you think about it, you know, after Johnson, it's only Clinton, right, who is impeached. Right. Um, well, Nixon comes that, close. Nixon resigns. Yeah, yeah. Right. He resigns. Right. I mean, he, he is cunning enough to resign before, uh, you know, being subjected, because it was quite clear to Nixon that even members of his own party would vote right. for his impeachment. Right. So that's why he resigns. And he gets pardoned by Ford. Um, now that what Nixon did was also a, a, a real criminal offense, which is to interfere in the elections, right. which is again right. the same thing that it, this is the same charge this time uh, with Trump. With Clinton, you know, he has a sexual relationship with a White House intern, uh, which is clearly inappropriate. Uh, but he, um, I think, a lot of people at that time, uh, both the public and people in Congress. Well, that this that that was the real witch hunt. That you know that that was not an impeachable offense. Uh, I mean, Clinton's approval rating was you know over sixty percent, nearly seventy, from what I've heard. Uh, when uh, Newt Gingrich and his uh, you know contract for America, or some people call it contract on America, uh, you know uh, actually began those impeachment hearings. So there was no public support for it uh, at all. Um, whatever we may think about Clinton's uh, offenses. Um, with Trump, we have a far more serious scenario. I mean, the criminality rises to the level of Nixon, uh, and the, the, the indecorous, the, the sort of clearly playing on racial divisions, um, you know, inappropriate, lacking presidential demeanor, is very similar to Johnson. So, um, you know, I think Trump really combines in him all these these aspects of impeachment, which have been rare, but that have occurred before in American history. Right. So, um, so that's sort of where I was going with the question. You know, do do you do you think that the reason we go all the way from Andrew Johnson in 1868 to the impeachment inquiry of Nixon in 1973, more than a hundred years, is is we don't have any any impeachment inquiry even in that time, in that in that hundred years in between. Is, is that because we didn't have presidents who were as bad, or because was one of the legacies of the Johnson impeachment that members of both parties wanted to avoid this nuclear option at almost all costs? You know, I think we really did not have a president who was openly criminal, and then uh, we had evidence of the criminality. I see. You know, maybe we did have presidents who, you know, who did things, as I said, that did not pass the smell right, test. But right. what Nixon did was so criminal, right. openly criminal. You know, today we had one of the, I think, Republican members recite a whole bunch of things from, you know, Lyndon Johnson to Lincoln to Obama and say, all these are impeachable offenses then. And he was just trying to muddy the water there. I really don't think we had that level of criminality until Nixon. Um, you had a lot of people who had policies that were not appropriate and perhaps abused uh, some of their executive powers. But, but impeachment is a high bar. Uh, and I don't think that anyone met that bar. And even before Johnson, the only other person over whom like, 
impeachment inquiry was actually initiated was John Tyler, right. who was also an accidental president, became right. president because William Henry Harrison died in office. Uh, Tyler was a pro-slavery zealot, and he was being impeached because he was just not going along with his party's policies also. Uh, that that just kind of died out at the inquiry stage, and then, of course, he was, uh, you know, not in the presidential ticket or anything, and Polk is elected. But what's interesting about Tyler is that after that, he actually did com- uh, commit treason against the United States. He voted for the secession of Virginia yes. from the Union. Yeah. So he's the only president who actually committed treason against the United States, um, interestingly enough. So I would I would think that those are the actions <laughs> that need the bar of impeachment. Um, so I don't think it was because people thought... Um, uh, Johnson's impeachment had failed. That right. became the narrative right. quickly, uh, especially you know with the fall of Reconstruction, and you had people revising the history of the Civil War and and seeing Reconstruction as this punitive Northern attempt uh, to punish the South. Uh, that people started buying into Johnson's idea. And Johnson clearly says that. Uh, if you give black people rights, you are being unduly harsh on the white mm-hmm. South. Mm-hmm. That kind of racist idea had become pretty entrenched uh, as the national story of Reconstruction. Uh, but I think at that moment, uh, people thought impeachment did what they wanted it to do, which was to damage Johnson so badly that even the Democrats didn't want him in their presidential right. ticket. Right. So in that sense, in the short term, it was successful. Um, just to get rid of Johnson. Um, in the long term, I, I do think that it is uh, a remedy that is um, taken by Congress in, in very, very egregious cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to pass that constitutional bar. And I do think that Nixon, certainly not Clinton in my opinion, but, but Nixon and Trump and Johnson seem to meet a certain level of, um, you know, uh, uh, the kinds of things exactly that the founders warned against. Do, um, do you think it's a problem? of democracy. Do you think mm-hmm. it's a problem, Anisha, that uh, no one's ever been removed? I mean, is that, is that a, as, from a historian's point of view, is that a positive feature of our system or a negative feature? Parliamentary systems obviously quite often have no confidence votes in a prime minister. Uh, our founders didn't want us to have that in the United States. But have we gone too far to the other extreme? Well, um, you know, I, I don't think so. You know, after all, the president does have to face uh, an election every right. four years. And now we have a system where, you know, after two terms, they can't stand for elections again. So right. there is a way to get rid of a president. But I think that, you know, the impeachment is not just to get rid of the person. It is also to establish um, the rule that no person is about the law, that yes. the president is, does not have the divine right to rule, that he is subject to the law also. So despite what uh, Attorney General William Barr has posited about unitary executive authority, that sounds a lot like, uh, you know, like, like the divine right of kings yes. that was to be, uh, I think the impeachment process, just to send a message, not just to the president, but to all office holders, to judges, to elected federal officials, that if you are involved in criminality and wrongdoing, there is a process to remove you, and that is not just the elections. 
that you would have to face the consequences of of breaking the law, of uh, being recreant to your to the oath of office, of of upholding the United States Constitution. And in that sense, I think it it, it is a useful thing. Uh, whether one removes um, the person from office or not, uh, Nixon would clearly have been impeached and removed. Uh, the votes were there. His own party was not behind him once the evidence came out. Uh, but, you know, he resigned. Right. So right. he was removed. But so in that sense, also, his impeachment inquiry was actually successful at right. getting rid of him. Right. So you right. didn't have a criminal in the White House right. anymore. Um, right. And and so I, I, I think it's good in a way that this is not an easy solution. On the other hand, it also depends on good faith. Yes. Uh, regardless of party, that we be able to judge, um, you know, the evidence in a case and, and, and uphold the Constitution, which is the, the oath that all members of Congress have to take. Right. Uh, and I'm afraid that's just not the case anymore. Right. So I, am, I, I can actually predict that, that Trump will be let off uh, in the Senate because, you know, you need a two-thirds majority. There is right. a slight Republican majority. Uh, I, I can't see any Republican senator so far uh, of, of actually uh, uh, breaking ranks. Uh, and at this time, I mean, it's I, sad to say that it's no longer the gradual party of the Republic. <laughs> So, so that might be the point where we should turn uh, just briefly to the to sort of where we are today in the future. And we, as you know, we always like to close on a on a positive note. What are the positive things that citizens, particularly um, many of our listeners, can take from this moment? We can't control, at least in the next few weeks, how members of the House and Senate will vote, but we're all active citizens. What 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 can we take from this process? How can impeachment as it exists as a process uh, contribute to the strengthening of our democracy rather than the undermining of our democracy? Um, You know, I have to say that as a naturalized citizen of the United States, I am in awe and so impressed with the way in which this uh, proceeding has actually been conducted. Um, You see upstanding, you know, national um, for you know, uh, officers, you know, foreign service officers, bureaucrats, uh, uh, law school professors, and they all explain very clearly why impeachment is important to check criminal behavior. And it could very well be that the positive outcome is that actually Trump does not get convicted in the Senate, but this, this acts as a check on him and his illegal behavior where he feels he can do all this stuff with impunity. I am sure that after being impeached in the House, he will think twice before calling up a foreign leader and saying, do me a favor, or trying to openly elicit foreign intervention in United States election, or any other kind of minor criminal behavior, uh, which seems, you know, that there's so many that I don't know where to begin. Uh, so I, I think if nothing else, this might act as a check on Trump the way the impeachment proceedings acted as a check on Johnson. Hmm. Um, that it will, you know, that Johnson, you know, realized that if he wanted not to be thrown out of office and impeached, become the first U.S. president to be impeached, that he would have to give that assurance that he would no longer right. interfere in reconstruction. Right. Right. And it hobbled him for the rest of his presidency. Right. I'm hoping that 
Trump will take that lesson too. Right. Um, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but that's that's my hope uh, that he realizes that you cannot behave with impunity, that there are checks and balances, and that you would have to face the consequences of uh, criminal and illegal behavior, right. even if you are the president of the United States. Right. And, and I think that that has to be uh, one of the key parts of the discussion, right? That this process of impeachment, this elaborate, complex process, like so many parts of our Constitution, exists uh, as much to educate the public as it does to affect an outcome in our politics. And, and if members of the public today, as happened in the early 1970s with the Nixon impeachment, are actually activated to think about about issues and engage as they weren't uh, engaged before. I mean, that that is a, a, a democratic outcome. Uh, that's an outcome that strengthens our, our democracy, and and that that would be the the hope coming out of that. Of course, the the worry is that people are, are witnessing different realities depending on what news station they're watching. Absolutely, but you know, even in Johnson's case, there was a different reality being spun. Of course, by Johnson, Northern Democrat racist. Uh, and, and, and and white Southern former Confederates. Sure. Um, luckily, they lost. Right. Um, and I, you know, you you can never tell. Uh, clearly, you know, people uh, are consuming their news in more and more partisan ways. But I think any objective independent watching the hearings and looking at the ways in which the Republicans are trying to completely subvert the process. Uh, or just like make up stuff and, and say this that can be fact checked in real time. Um, you know, it's a. I'm hoping that there are pa- enough patriots amongst American citizens who will be able to, to tell the truth. Like they say, you can lie to some of the people some of the time, but you can't lie to all the people all the time. Right. And uh, in addition, right, you can also, yeah. by, by listening to the lies closely enough, sometimes you can actually find the truth. Absolutely. Uh, oddly enough, they have at times unwittingly Correct. A, in trying to claiming impunity for all kinds of outrageous behavior Correct. Uh, actually brought them to light. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. And that's exactly how guilty people behave. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. Zachary, uh, do you, do you do you think that uh, other young people like yourself are are finding this an enlightening moment? Does does this uh, wonderful discussion and background that Manisha has given us does it does it does it inspire young people to, or does it just disillusion them? Well, I, I actually think it's it's it, it it's very optimistic and and very hopeful when when so many young people are able to see these very vital processes of our democracy at work every day now, and also I think it's very powerful to see all the amazing civil servants in our government on stage and to see how much work and how much dedication these people put in every day. And I think that really inspires a next generation of right. leaders. Right. And and maybe as, as Manisha has recounted in her scholarship and in her interview now, maybe just as the impeachment of Andrew Johnson does empower radical Republican uh, reconstruction efforts uh, in the years after, maybe what we're seeing today will empower more more activism among young people and, and those who want to uh, renew our democracy one way or another. Definitely. Well, thank you uh, so much, um, Manisha, for your insights and sharing your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for those very good questions. And I have to compliment Zachary for his poem. It was, it was really good. Thank uh, you. Uh, I was happy to follow you. Well, we were lucky to have you and Zachary on today. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us here uh, where this is democracy. Thank you. 
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.